We're going to read 1 John chapter 4, verses 19 through 21. But before we do that, let me pray for us. Lord God, we love you and we worship you. We thank you for what John just reminded us that death has no victory, death has no sting. This curse that we have received for sin and disobedience has been destroyed, undone by what Jesus did for us. And though we will die, we remember what Jesus said, if we believe in him, yet will we live. And we do praise you for that. We look forward to eternal life. And God, we thank you that that's not entirely something that is waiting for us on the other side of death, but that you sent your spirit to live and dwell in us now, that we would begin to experience what eternal life is, even as we continue through this temporal life. And I pray that you would help us to walk in faithfulness to you and to enjoy the experience of living in fellowship with you. We thank you for the church. We thank you for your body. We thank you for your word. And we pray that you would bless us through this time that we share together in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, First John chapter 4. We're going to read verses 19 through 21. So I encourage you to read along with me. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. All of scripture is obviously wonderful and beautiful and precious to us as Christians. It's God's speaking to us. But man, verse 19 here should be very precious to us as believers. The verse tells us our motivation for all Christian living. It tells us the motivation for all of our striving for holiness. It explains why we do everything that we do as believers. We love because God first loved us. God has generously and graciously and patiently and wonderfully loved us. He stepped into the darkness himself to grab us and rescue us and lead us out of that darkness to deliver us from evil. And because of his great love for us, we are now transformed and we're made into the kind of people who can also love. We do this thing because God has done it to us and praise God for that fact. There's three relational implications, I think, to this verse. We love because he first loved us. The first one is that in response to God's love for us, we first and foremost love God back. How could we understand everything that he's done for us? The way in which he has so graciously and kindly loved us and not be moved in response to love him back. The Bible is very clear that before we received God's love, we were God-haters. We were enemies of God. We were children of wrath. It's important as Christians we understand that every person is born with a heart 
that is naturally cold towards God. It's dead. It's hard towards God. It's rebellious against God. But as God pours out his love on us and he opens our eyes to the depth of how wonderful his love for us is, he begins in that process to soften our hearts. As we receive his love, we can't help but be changed and respond and love him in return. We're like a flower that in the cold of the morning is, is closed up. And yet when the sun begins to warm that flower, as it rises and the rays touch it, it begins to open and maybe even turn towards the light that it's receiving. And having received God's gracious love, having been welcomed into his family as his children, having been given this Holy Spirit that he puts in us and redeeming us out of sin through the blood of Christ, above all other things, we as Christians come to love God. Because we understand, first, he loved us. Long before we ever went looking for him, he came to rescue us. The second relational implication in verse 19 is that we love the brothers and sisters that we have in Christ. This family that we belong to. I mean, look around the room. These are your brothers and sisters in Christ. Precious in the eyes of God, redeemed by the very same blood that redeemed you. Because God has loved us, he has brought us into his family. He's made us into creatures that not only can love God, but can actually now love one another and succeed in that work and do it well. He's surrounded us by this community or with this community that's built on love and that is daily sustained by the outpouring of his love. And so because God has loved us and we're secure in that love and we're free in that love and we're confident in that love, we now are free to give love, to love our brothers and sisters, to do that in a way that's maybe risky, to do that in a way that's patient and consistent and, and giving. God's love for us is the fuel that drives our love for one another. And we must love one another because God's love is dwelling in us. It's present in us. Now, there's a third relational implication here that I think is a little more difficult. When the Bible says that we're to love our brother, like it does here in these verses, I don't think it's literally talking about our flesh and blood family. When the Bible says love one another, that's a mutual love that goes both ways. That can't be something that we expect the world, those who are still far from God, to give back to us. And so what I'm driving towards is that when the Bible speaks on these terms, 1 John in particular, what it's telling us is that we must love our fellow Christians. We must love one another, other believers, our brothers and sisters in Christ. But having said that, it does not remove our obligation to love everyone. We're not off the hook from loving people who are far from God. But you do need to understand, the Bible breaks humanity down into two groups, and only two groups. The two groups are those who love God, who are children of God, and those who hate God and are enemies of God. And there's no intersection of additional identity markers in the Bible. None. There are two groups. 
God-lovers who are children of God and God-haters who are enemies of God. And I think sometimes when we hear the Bible teach on loving... uh, Sorry, I, I should add to this, though, that although there are two groups, we are still called to love our enemies, right? The, the Bible say, may say here that we need to love one another, but we need to understand that because God's love has changed us, we are now lovers like God himself. And we are called then to even love God's enemies. Those who would be God-haters, those who despise God. Because God first loved us and we were once an enemy, we must also love those who are far from God. But I think sometimes when we hear the Bible tell us that we need to love our enemies, that we tend to think like, you know, that jerky dude that I work with who's kind of always got it out for me. That's my enemy, right? He's the guy who uh, can never give me a good report at work or the neighbor who likes to drive his car over my grass or something like that. It's the person who's wronged us. We think that is our enemy. And I want to explain to you, I don't think that's actually what the Bible wants us to think when it talks in terms of loving our enemies. I don't think that we should think about enemies on personal terms at all. I think when we think about what an enemy is, we should think on the terms that the Bible gives us, God's terms. Our enemies are not those who have wronged us, but those who have wronged God. Our true enemies are people who are still God-haters and still rebels against God. Think about this for a second. And I'm going to tell you, this is another hard truth. What this potentially means is something like, if your mother is not a Christian, then your mother is actually your enemy. Far more so than someone in this room who is a Christian who has maybe wounded you or hurt you. Your mother, if she does not know Jesus, is God's enemy. And if you're a friend of God, then that would make her your enemy as well. This is what Jesus meant when he said that he came to bring a sword. He came to divide families, potentially based on these two groups, those who love God and those who do not love God. Now, before you get mad at me for saying mean things about your mom, remember verse 19. We love because he first loved us. And this is the real point that I'm trying to make. We love even our enemies, defined in these terms as those who hate God, because at one point, Scripture tells us while we were enemies, Christ yet died for us. He didn't do that when we were close to him. He did that because we were far from him. We were once God-haters, and God loved us. And so God's love then for us compels us to love even those who are the enemies of God, even those who would hate God. And so let's review here the three relational implications from verse 19. God loved us first before we ever loved him. As a result of that, our first responsibility is to love God in return. We must also then love our fellow Christian, our brothers and sisters in Christ, because God's love is poured out into us and we now love like he loves. 
And we must also love even the enemies of God. Because God's love goes so far as to embrace even those who hate him, who rebel against him. Okay, but for the most part, the verses that we're looking at today focus really on our love for God and our love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And here's what I want you to understand. These are not two distinct things. Our love for God and our love for one another, our brothers and sisters in Christ. Loving God and loving our fellow Christian are so intimately connected that they're really one in the same thing. They're essentially uh, inseparable. It is literally impossible to love God and not love your brothers and sisters in Christ. It's an impossibility. It, it cannot be done. This is what John is telling us in verses 20 and 21. Look again with me. He says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. In very practical terms, in the simplest form, sincere love for God looks like obedience to his commands. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commands. And so the proof of our love for God is not how emphatically we say it, how much we claim it. It's whether or not we walk in obedience to what Jesus taught. And our love for God is going to urge us towards obedience. We want to do what he has told us to do. We believe that the way that he showed us to go about living is the best way. There's no better way. And in these verses that we're looking at, John has one particular command especially in mind. That if we love God, we'll obey him. One command in particular. And that's the command that Jesus gave his disciples to love one another. It's found in John 13, verses 34 to 35. I'm not going to turn there, but let me just read it for you. Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, so you are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. In that quote, I mean, John has to be thinking of what Jesus said there. Because in that quote, he connects the same three things that we've looked at. Because God has loved us, we now love him. And his love for us compels us to love others. God loves us. In response, we love him and we love others. And it's because God's love for us is such a powerful motivator, it's because God's love for us is such a magnificent change agent, such a beautiful conductor of godliness, that John is bold to say this the way that he does. Look at this in verse 20. If anyone says... I love God and hates his brother. He needs some more work. No, he's a liar. He is a liar. 
In other words, love for God and love for others is so intimately connected that it's impossible to say that you love God while you live with hatred in your heart towards a fellow Christian in particular. It's not possible. The person who says they love God while at the same time hating their fellow Christian, that person is a liar. That's intense. In our very politically correct world where you can't say truthful things if it might hurt somebody's feelings, John does not mince words. He doesn't play that game. He goes right for it. He's not embarrassed or ashamed to call this person out. He says to them, if you live with hatred in your heart for a fellow brother or sister in Christ, and yet you claim that you love God, you are in fact just a deceiver, a dishonest person. You are a liar. And we need to think very carefully about this statement for a moment. We need to think with some humility in our hearts, some honesty, some self-reflection, some soul-searching. If you claim to be a Christian and you claim to love God, is there anyone who's part of our church who you would withhold your love from? Any faces or names come to mind? Is there anyone from our church community who you feel hatred towards? Anyone who you feel like, man, no matter how much I try, I could just never get along with that person? Anyone that you wish went to a different church instead of our church? If they left, you'd be like... Is there anyone from Maricopa Springs that you're withholding your forgiveness towards? Anybody in our church that you're angry with or you're bitter towards? Anyone who you think, yeah, they go to church, but they really don't deserve my kindness. They're not worthy of it. I want to point out that if any of those thoughts or feelings or behaviors are present in your heart, that doesn't look like love. That's not the kind of thought or feeling or behavior that Jesus himself would show to other people. They don't reflect God's love for you. God has loved us. He's loved you. And because God has loved you in that way, those aren't the kinds of things that you should then pass on to other people who are fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Maybe I should just say it like John does. If you persist in those thoughts or those feelings or those behaviors towards other people, particularly in our church, let's just focus it down for a moment. If you persist in those thoughts or those feelings or those behaviors towards other people who are here, and yet you claim that you are a son or daughter of God, actually, John would tell you, you're just a liar. You're a dishonest person. You don't know God's love. Or you wouldn't pass on that kind of thing to somebody else when you've received such grace from God. See, because what we're actually saying here is really just the law of non-contradiction. 
okay? This is like the fundamentals of reason and philosophy. The sky cannot be blue and not blue at the same time. The sky might be blue and red, but it can't be blue and not blue at the same time. That's a contradiction. And in the same way, you cannot have received God's love if you consistently fail to give God's love. That's a contradiction. And we might try to wiggle out from this by saying, well, look, Grady, John uses the word hate. And I don't hate anybody. I just don't like them. But the standard that we've been given by Christ is, is love. And if you fail to love somebody, then you have failed the second great commandment. Love your neighbor. Love your neighbor. Jesus said, love one another just as I have loved you. And so you don't even have to go to the extreme of hate, just consistently falling short of love. And you've not done what Jesus commanded you to do. And this is why love is so important in the Christian community. Here's why. Because love is the visible presence of the invisible God. Look again at the scriptures, verse 20. John writes, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. There's a sense in which we could say loving God is easier than loving people, right? I mean, if you've persisted in trying to love people for any amount of time, you'll know. It's difficult. People are messy. They're ugly. I mean, I don't, I mean, just in the way they behave. God does not sin against us. He doesn't wound us. He doesn't inflict pain upon us. He doesn't say stupid things and hurt our feelings. He's not going to fail. And in that sense, loving God is much easier than loving people because people are difficult and they're messy and they take a lot of patience and persistence. Okay, but in another sense, God is more difficult to love because we can't do to him tangibly acts of love. I can't do the dishes for God to show him how much I love him. Where would I go to do such a thing? And so John's actually making a really powerful point here. Where is the invisible God made visible? And the answer he offers is in the Christian community. We can even go maybe a further back before we get to that point and we can say from the beginning of the Bible, the scriptures teach us that God made man in his image and likeness. And so where is God to be found in this tangible world? We could say to some degree simply in the existence of people that we encounter around us. This is why sinning against other people is actually such a grievous thing because not only do you wrong them, but you wrong the God who made them in his image. When you do evil against another person, you also do evil against God because God has made every person precious in his image. But within the Christian community, it goes even further than that. 
God is made visible in his people not only in the fact that all people are made in his image, but far more so because the Spirit of God dwells in the people of God. The invisible God is made visible in his body, in the church, in us, in you and me, in the temple of flesh that's made up of every true Christian. There's no longer a temple of stone, but the temple of flesh that was Christ, who was crucified and raised from the dead, and now is risen to be with the Father, his spirit is present in you. You are his temple of flesh. The invisible God is made visible in the interconnected family of believers who are a living receptacle for the living God, whose spirit dwells in us. And this is what John is getting at. We show our love for the invisible God by laying down our lives in service, in love, in the visible body. That is Christ's bride, the church. And you cannot claim to love the invisible God whom you cannot see if you don't love his visible representation in the current age, the people of God. You cannot claim to love God while you hate the place where God dwells on earth, which is in other believers. So let me boldly say at this point, any religious devotion that fails to practically love others is nothing but a sham. That's not real devotion. Let me say it again. Any claim that you are a devoted Christian when you lack simple love for other people, it's just a fraud. It's insincere. Or as one writer put it, it is pure self-delusion to view love for God as fulfilled when love for others is lacking. But since we're on the topic of love, let me revisit yet again the definition of love that I've been giving you as we've made our way through 1 John. Because 1 John talks a lot about love. We need to define it. I've claimed that to love somebody is to will what is good for them. There's probably lots that we could add to that definition, but I think that's helpful. If you love somebody, you will what is good for them. And by will, I mean you put your desire, your power, your resources, your effort to work to bring about for them what is good for them. That's what it means to love. And of course, love comes with all of those other things that we looked at a few weeks ago in 1 Corinthians 13. It's patient. It's kind. It doesn't envy or boast. It doesn't insist on its own way, etc., etc. You know those, I hope. But the reason why I'm giving the definition to you again today is because I want to speak for a moment in opposition towards another definition that I think is ugly and insidious and false that I see creeping up in our culture. Our culture is beginning to say that love for somebody is giving them what they demand from you. Our culture believes that if you love somebody, you will just give them whatever they demand from you. And I think I'm seeing this definition begin to infect the thinking of church people. 
Maybe a silly illustration would be something like, you know, a small child demanding that his parents give him ice cream for dinner instead of broccoli, and he's going to make a stink until he gets it. I mean, I know plenty of parents who would just give in. They'd be like, sure, if that'll get you to shut up and stop crying. I love you, so I'll give you ice cream for dinner. Built into the word demand is the concept of rights. I'm demanding these things because I believe that I have a right to demand them from you. Another example might be a father who's a tyrant at home, mistreats his wife and children, and yet demands to be respected because he's the head of the household. And that's his right. And what I want you to understand, what I'm driving towards, is that you don't actually have any rights before a holy God. I mean, we live in America, and so we think we have rights. It makes the newspapers every week. You've been told your whole life that you have rights. The First Amendment, the Second Amendment, go on and on and on. But even our American Declaration of Independence acknowledges something interesting, doesn't it? It says that we have these inalienable rights, and where do they come from? Not from government, but from God. God gives us these inalienable rights. And I would say that that is true, but what I want you to understand is that you actually have no rights before God. He has given you these things graciously, but you cannot demand from him anything. It doesn't work like that. God owes you nothing. Which is precisely why his love is so astounding, isn't it? He doesn't give it to you because you demand it or deserve it or are entitled to it or have rights for it. He gives it to you graciously, freely, because he's kind. We love because we've been shaken to the very core of our being that this God loves us beyond any reason that we could possibly understand. He just loves us. And when we look at God, we see that God has every right to make demands upon us. He has every right to demand from us that we would do things to honor him. He has every right to judge us. He has every way to get or every right to get his way, to stamp out our rebellion, to crush our will and our desires. But instead, in gentleness, in selflessness, in kindness, in grace, he loves us. He lays down his life for us. More than that, Philippians 2 teaches us that Jesus set aside the glory that was rightfully his, that we could be made right with God. Jesus set his rights aside to redeem us. And so by definition, we must reject as Christians any claim that to love somebody is to simply tolerate every demand that they make of us. When in fact, many of those demands are not good for them and they don't align with what God has taught us is true. The love that John points us to here is God's lowly, self-sacrificial love, which God gave to us first before we were ever worthy of it. And God's love always points towards our best interest. God wills what is good for us because he loves us. 
And he went to work to secure what is good for us by giving his son as a sacrifice. And we may demand something different, but God in his goodness does not cower to our demands. Now as we get to verse 21, I actually want us to go back to the beginning. This is the commandment that Jesus gave. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Like I've said over and over and over again, our power to actually obey this command, where does it come from? It comes from verse 19. We love because he first loved us. Again, this is the motivation for all Christian living. All of our striving for holiness is rooted right here in this truth. It's not only what is possible for us now, since we've received God's love. It's not merely what is possible for us. Friends, this is what is inevitable for us. This is what will happen. This is what must happen. This is what, by definition, has to happen. Because we've received God's love, God has loved us. Therefore, we will love others. The simple end result of God's love driven into our hearts is that we are people who love. 